Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Everson from Villanova University, and welcome to the Big East Rewind. The Big East Rewind came about when Sonny Sparrow and I from Syracuse University were on a recruiting trip and became friends, and we've been friends ever since. And we had a bond that has developed over playing in the very tough Big East Conference. The Big East Rewind is all about Big East basketball, old school style with the battles and stories that came about during our time playing in the Big East. From the perspective of the media, coaches, former players, and even officials. So we hope you enjoy the Big East Rewind. On this edition of the Big East Rewind, Sonny and I talk with Hall of Famer Michael Wilbon. Mike talks to us all about working with the Georgetown Hoyas as he was the beat writer for them when he was with the Washington Post. He also talks about Coach Thompson and his relationship with him and everything Hoyas. Can't wait for you guys to hear this one. Michael Wilbon on this week's Big East Rewind. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Big East Rewind. I am your seven-foot host, Chuck Everson, and my partner, as always, my point guard, Sonny Sparrow from Syracuse <laughs> University. How are you, Sonny? <clears throat> Chuck, I'm doing great. This is a guest that we've been... Uh sort of tracking for a while pretty excited we, to have him on Can't we wait. have we have and it's uh it's been great stalking it's... Him almost almost stalking. I, I, can make you, I can make you regret that in a few minutes <laughs> i bet you could i was I hesitating to use the word stalk i'll tell you that much but i was That's like, right oh, you I'm don't want to say. use that word sonny so <laughs> um so look, without any further ado let me introduce our guest sonny today we have um our guest has covered everything from the Georgetown Hoyas to the Olympics to the Super Bowl and everything in between. He's a Naismith Hall of Famer, Sonny, another Hall of Famer. Another Hall of Famer, another, baby. Another Hall of Famer, okay? Now the co-host of Pardon the Interruption with his partner, Tony Kornheiser, from the south side of Chicago, my main man, Michael Wilbon. How are you, Mike? Chuck, Sonny, I'm good, man. It's good to join you guys. I hear, I have heard so much hype over your podcast and how great it is. I have so, so many people offering testimony. I'm like, my goodness, can't, can't wait for it. Well, you know, it's been a lot of fun, Mike. I mean, we, you know, Sonny and I met, you know, everybody knows now, Sonny and I met on a recruiting trip. I was visiting Syracuse and he was my host. So we've been friends since 81, you know, 82. And um, did a show with the Georgetown guys. They had a thing called the Hoya Locker Room and we, we said, you know what, we should do that for the Big East. And and it's been a lot of fun. You know, you're getting to know guys that you played against that you never really had conversations with before, sure. you know. It's really cool. And especially there was some, you know, perceptions of certain teams and certain guys, you know. And turns out they're the nicest guy. They're the nicest guys we've talked to since we've been doing this. That's so great. As long as it's 30 years later. That's right. Well, that's right. We don't have to step on the court with them anymore. So that that part's uh, that part's good. So we got we got through the paranoia. Let's say that. <laughs> oh, I remember yeah, those we, days quite well. We broke down all those barriers, Mike. You know? <laughs> so it was good. It was really good. So it's been a lot of fun. So so let's kick this off. So growing up in the south side of Chicago, tough neighborhood, right? That's a tough area, isn't it? Yeah. Talk it about is. that for a minute and how, and, and, you know, I know you, I know you went to St. Ignatius and, you know, mm -hmm. you went to a, a Catholic school and, uh, you know, talk about growing up in the South side of Chicago, what that was like as a young kid. Wow. You know, it's so, I hear it portrayed now 
um, and you see it portrayed, you, you see things like um, uh, the Chicago PD show, or you see, you know, uh, all kinds of fictional portrayals, and they try to weave in nonfiction. But I, when I was growing up there, I didn't see it as a canvas for future artistic impression. I just, it was just where I grew up, it's where I lived. I grew up there with a lot of people in the sports world, particularly the basketball world. Chicago's, the South Side has produced some football players now. Dick yeah. Butkus, Ray Nitschke, you guys are quite old enough to know those guys. I names. remember Butkus. I remember Butkus, yeah. Those guys were South Side Chicago guys, but it was more basketball people, you know, uh, from, you know, more modern names like Derrick Rose, who grew Derrick up, Rose, yeah. he grew up adjacent. He was in Inglewood, I was in West Chatham, but the same floor, we sort of played on it. So that's the only thing I have in common with Derrick. Uh, they would let me in Simeon to get out of the cold and snow to play on that floor. Uh, but guys like him played on it for real and Dwayne Wade and going back Mo Cheeks and Ricky Green and um, all kinds of more famous names. I'm leaving out some because they don't come to mind immediately, but they're people I grew up watching. You could, you could drive down the street on one of the famous streets on 79th Street and see Muhammad Ali shooting dice with guys, maybe including really? my father. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, this, this wow. is a plot of land and later it produced Carol Mosley Braun and then later the 44th president of the United States of America, Barack Obama. And we all grew up. He didn't grow up. He grew, was in Hawaii and he came there. But the rest of us, some of those names I mentioned, we grew up there going to high school. Uh, Mo Cheeks played for my uncle at DuSable High School. Uh, we grew up whatever we did. We, and we did more than one sport. I mentioned basketball, all those guys who were great back. Kirby Puckett, the Hall of Fame baseball player sure. the Twins. He won one of the longest home runs in the history of high school baseball against me. Throwing him, <laughs> throwing, throwing at some fat pitch in an early inning. And we all grew up, you know, together, aspiring. Everybody played multiple sports. If you played one sport, you were an outcast. Get out. Get out. You won sport? Because even if you weren't any good at the others, you had to play. You know, so, I mean, it was just. Was that the type of thing, Mike, where you guys, you'd have a bunch of kids like like the Sandlot movie and you'd yes. play sport to sports. Yes. That's how it was growing up for me in Long Island. We are still tight with those guys, you know? Of course it was. And, you know, this notion of one sport, I get on my son all the time. There's nothing he can do about it because he got to have practice. And then you got to go right. to the AAU and you got a travel team. And you got your high right. school. And it's like, it, it's, it's really sort of made sports less than what it ought to be in terms of the spirit of competition and what you. And then with the west side of Chicago, which there were rivalries, that's where, you know, we often played this because I went to Catholic high school. We played against Isaiah Thomas at St. Joe's, Doc Rivers. I saw my brother right. play against those guys. And so we, we, had, we had great basketball. We'd like to put our basketball up against anybody's. And I would argue when I see these guys, you know, with Kenny Smith and with Chris Mullen, with Mully. And he would say, wait a minute, you know, this guy played against him on the AAU team. He's from Chicago. And I argue this stuff with the Detroit guys. And, the, you know, and it's a it's a point of pride. Um, and and we, we did that. I was not good enough to be on a basketball court with those guys. I was good enough to be on a diamond with them. Um, and some guys were really, really, really great at multiple sports. Uh, so it was I didn't I just took it for granted. It's where I grew up. It's where I came of age. Um, I have an apartment in Chicago now. I, I, I try to sneak back and go back whenever I can. Mm -hmm. I see some of those guys. People have come back now in our older age. I saw Mark Aguirre walking down the street one day. And Mark, who's on the west side, Mark, I said, Mark, what are you doing? He goes, 
the same thing you're doing. I got an apartment here. Just hey, get, you know, and people are are coming back there and, and enjoying the city in ways that we did not when we were young and could not, but can now. So it's a very it's a it's a point of pride. So wow. in your in your high school days, you were you were a, a player. Did you also have this interest in the writing and the creativity aspect? Yeah, because I knew I wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't yeah. that wasn't what I meant. No, but that's all right. That's all right, because that's that's the fact. I was good enough as a baseball player. Uh, Could I have played? I played high school baseball at Ignatius. Could I have played college baseball? Yes. I'm not going to be phony, you know, phony phony modesty on that. Could I have played basketball? Hell no. I wasn't good enough to play high school basketball. I wasn't, you know, I I played, I was a decent pickup player. I was never the last guy chosen. Never. Um, Never the first either. That's solid. That's solid. You know, I I was, I was somewhere closer to the top. At least that's the way I tell it now. And um, <laughs> but yeah, I knew that I wanted to. By the time I was fifty, I, you know, there's a moment. Look, you guys played big time. You guys played at friggin'. I mean, come on, you played in the Big East. You played in Villanova and Syracuse. You know what big time basketball was. You knew at some point, like thirteen or fourteen years old, there was a separation, right? Yeah. Like everybody was fairly even at twelve, and then all of a sudden, zoom, like like. Somebody did something on the playground one day and, and, and the people who were smart enough said, yeah, let me, let me go to plan B on this thing. Um, <laughs> and that's what certainly happened to me on the playground. And I, I knew I wanted to marry my two interests, you know, sports and writing. Um, I knew when I was in fifth grade that I was the, I was the number one draft choice in that. I, I just had that. My mother was a teacher. Um, I could diagram sentences in fifth grade so well that I would challenge the teacher and say, no, that's not right. This is how, this is that sentence. I was that kid. And it wasn't as nerdy because I was so cocky about it, but I knew the language. I knew how to control the language. I knew how to more or less master at that age, the language. And I knew I could um, marry the two interests. And so, because I knew I got bored easily and I needed to do something that I love to do. And so, so that was it. Those were, those two things were it. So, so then you, your travels take you now to Northwestern, right? And their prestigious, uh, you know, program. Talk about what that was like. That was, there's a lot of big time guys that came out of there too. You know, we, we talk all the time. Sonny's a Syracuse guy. Obviously there's a, that's a media haven. You know, everybody and their brother who's, who's anybody uh, you hear about that, but there's a whole bunch of guys that came out of where you went to school. Oh my God. Let me tell you, I'll tell you briefly, one of my favorite stories, Sonny, you'll appreciate this. I get a call one day from Mike Tirico, uh, (laughs) a hall of fame Syracuse alum. Yeah. Right. In the business. And we do have a rivalry guys. I mean, the rivalry, Medill and Syracuse and Newhouse, I mean, you know, that's a rivalry, yeah. and it is totally out of respect and knowing the, the the colleagues, the great graduates from the other program, whichever one you're in. And so I get a call from Tariko, and he says, all right, I'm calling you. To, this pains me to tell you that my daughter wants to go to Northwestern, <laughs> and she wants <laughs> to go to Medill. This, this brought me great joy. It still brings me great joy that his daughter is at Northwestern. And... Yes, these are these are two great programs. You hope to be able to go to one or the other. Um, and yeah, I, I went to I went to Medill at Northwestern um, in my backyard, um, 20, 20 miles away from where I grew up. And it wasn't like I was looking to stay home. But why the hell would I leave when that program is twenty miles away? And I'm going to stay on campus. I'm going to be at a Big Ten school. Um, 
I don't like to remind myself that my very first football game was against Notre Dame and a quarterback wearing number three name was Montana. And I'm pretty sure we can look this up. The final score is 49, nothing. I think, you know, what direction that went. (laughs) And so, but I was still at a big 10 school. I had, I had big 10 sports kind of sort of back then. I had a great, the greatest journalism experience that I believe I could have. And we had people that, yeah, they, they made you nervous competitively guys because they were so good. And I, I was, I don't know. I thought I was a late bloomer in it. Um, but you know, I knew I, I had the, I was, I had the skills to be in the place. And if I worked hard enough and listened and learned and, you know, gradually got better that I should amount to something. And I love my time there. I don't have this life without my time there. So when you, when you, when do you get the Washington post? Are you interning there when you're in yep. school? How, do, how does that happen? Yep. Sonny, I'm there. I'm applying like every kid in our two schools, I'm applying for all the great internships in America. Newsweek, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, I did not apply for broadcast internships back then because, and this is something that, this is a way that people like, I'm gonna insert myself with him, I shouldn't. Bob Costas was only a couple of years older than me. People, we had one road, one side of the road or the other to try to figure out how to make, how to travel. Now, right, yeah, probably right after Tariqo, people did their multimedia. These kids do it all now. They send you their clips and their resume of writing and their broadcast reels. We didn't have that. It was one or the other. So mine was print. I applied. All I wanted to do was work for my hometown newspaper, the Sun-Times, the Chicago Sun-Times or Tribune. They both turned me down. Um, but the next week after I, before I could let it sink in, the d- disappointment of being told no from those two, by those two, I got accepted to Newsweek, um, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. So uh, my ego was back intact. The Washington Post internship was sports. Oh, Newsweek no and the New York Times were not. And by the way, I didn't know, I didn't feel I had to be in sports then. But I mean, if you're going to give me the choice, yeah. the, the no Washington brainers. Post sports department with the people who were there at the time. So yeah, so I, I said yes, I went to work the day after graduation and I was, I was there two summers and never came back. Now, who are some of the guys on, was that, was that the bullets? Was that like yes. and Elvin yes. Hayes and yes. Pearl? And, oh. I got there and the parade oh, was like that day. The That's parade, heaven. So, well, not the parade because they had won in the, of the first of those two sure. matchups, right? Yeah. So this is yeah. the next year. So the bullets had lost in the finals to, Gus Johnson yeah, and Seattle, EJ right. and yeah. John Johnson and Sigma and Freddie Brown. So they Sigma. lost to them. And by the way, so here's the other thing that's happening in DC. So the, the Bullets are on top of the world, right? They just played in two straight finals. Yeah. One of my early assignments for my sports editor was to go to the airport and meet Ray Leonard as he was coming back from the fight with Duran. The Ooh. Nomas fight or the yeah. uh, before that? I, I think it was it had to be Nomas because he won. Right. So this is insane. And I saw Ray Leonard not too long ago. And I said to him, Ray, you, you don't remember this, but and so like boxers are like golfers. It seems I know some baseball players too. And that they remember every single thing that happened in their lives along the way, like every punch and every round and all that. Ray Leonard's like that now. Yeah. Uh, it's, at, at, Ray's a couple of years older than me. So maybe 64, maybe. And I said, Ray, you don't remember this, but I, I came to the airport to meet you after your fight. He goes, yeah, I remember landing at DCA, and yeah, you were one of the guys there. That's how we met. What? Wow. 
like, what do you, what, what? And he's like, yeah, it was after one, the Duran fight, right? And it's just like, you know, this guy wow. has like this kind of recall, which is part of the greatness of any, as you guys know, a great athlete. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I was, that's when I got to DC. That's what was going on. Not Joe Gibbs being hired. So you, you really had to regret not going to Newsweek, obviously. <laughs> yeah. just... Man, I, I, you know, um, like, like, and you know what, <laughs> you know what, well, hey. I'm sure there were great things going on in New York at the time, Sonny. I just, because I got to Washington in that time and then was living in it, it's much fresher to me. Like, I think Eddie Murray might have been like rookie of the year or, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, right in there, maybe second season. And I started going to cover Orioles games. And then I did that the following summer. And then this kid comes up named Ripken. And, you know, it was a it was a pretty unbelievable time to be. The Redskins were pretty good back then, too, at that time, no? Joe Gibbs got there. Um, so, yeah, 81, they draft Daryl Green. Yeah. John Riggins comes John Riggins. off of a holdout. Doug it was Williams. just, you know, I'm Doug just Williams. thinking about some of these things for the first time. Joe Theismann was the quarterback and probably should have been MVP on one of those teams, but they were, yes, yes, yes. You had, man, you had some greatness uh, going on at that time in the area. The hogs. So, so, so now Mike, how do you go? How do you go? I guess something you get assigned to the Hoyas, right? As their beat guy in the 80s. I get assigned to cover Georgetown basketball the year after they'd gone to the elite eight, they lost a chance to go to the final four against Iowa. Iowa went to the final four with Ronnie Lester and a backcourt mate, my best friend growing up, Kenny Arnold. Oh, wow. Who, who, who got drafted but never made the NBA. Right. I mean, your childhood friends from Chicago, Lute Olsen, swallowed Chicago whole. I mean, he recruited Chicago much more than Bob Knight, much more than – not more than Ray Meyer because that was backyard at DePaul. Yeah. But, yeah, so I, I, I get assigned to Georgetown because Big John was recruiting a kid – from Ringin Latin High School in Boston named Patrick Ewan. Yeah. So, so you we were... went from we went from covering Georgetown, you know, covering Georgetown with interest to covering Georgetown like the Redskins. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how that's how it changed. Yeah. So you were part of the, and I I I, I don't even want to say it out loud, but I have say it, say it, say it. You were you were part of the Manly Fieldhouse is officially closed. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, wait a second. Get this out of my heart. <laughs> Sonny, Sonny, actually, so my first season in Washington covering college basketball, I covered like the local scene. So it was more some Maryland, some Georgetown, but a lot of George Mason, a lot of GW, George Washington, okay. Howard, everything, Navy, you know, all of it. So I was not there for John, for Big John's proclamation, Manly Fieldhouse is now officially closed. I know all about it because John <laughs> loved it. He loved repeating the story. He loved telling it, you know, in future years when I was covering Georgetown and covering Syracuse and got to know Coach Beheim. Yes, it it seems like I've heard it so many times. I've seen it. I've relived it through them that it seems like I was there. I was not there. But my God, I know about it as if I was. The thing that's amazing to me is that Beheim got past that and they became friends. Listen. I was there for that part too. I was there when it was so contentious that not only were they not speaking to each other, Jim wouldn't speak to me and Feinstein. I, yeah, I, I think believe we it. always yeah. spoke to Tony Kornheiser. 
He wouldn't speak to us. Big John wouldn't speak to Elfin and whoever was covering Syracuse. Yeah, Dave Elfin. Yeah, he was a Syracuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, you know how it stopped. Dave Gabbett met with all of us and said, "I want this over. I want this stopped." And he took at least Feinstein, Ken Denlinger, and myself to dinner when we got to Syracuse. I swear, I wish I can remember, remember the name of the restaurant. I can't. Grimaldi's. No, it wasn't Grimaldi's. I've been to yeah. Grimaldi's. Since. Okay. It was, it was an Italian spot. I don't remember what it was. But been we, Joseph. he asked yeah. us to stop. The mm-hmm. commissioner. How, like, like, like how Ma and Pa was the conference at that point where the right. commissioner calls up a coach and a couple of writers and says, okay, you're going to meet me and this is going to stop. That's Can't Dave Gavitt, though. That's Dave yeah. Gavitt. It, it, it's such a simple thing. You would think it's common sense, Mike, but nobody did that. You know, he was ahead of his time with relationship building and stuff. We've- he was, and he had the relationships, Chuck, as you know. He yeah. had the relationships personally to go to Big John or go to, 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 to Coach Beheim to come to the even the older writers who were, you know, could be stars at that time nationally and just say, no, 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 we're not. Fellas, we're not doing And he paid for dinner. He took us to dinner and I was young. I was in awe because I was probably like 23 when that happened. Wow. And of course, it's later. I tell like my wife's heard the story. And of course, we have gone out with Jim and Julie. We've Jim has had Tony and me come up and host events there. Yep. Syracuse, and we have done it excitedly because we both love Jim. And, and it, it would seem like it, like we always did, and I guess there was that point in which there was that tension, and basically it was a tension that revealed what the, the growing pains of the conference and what the conference was doing at the time. Because Big John had fights with everybody, right? I mean, he and right. Rick Pitino almost came to blows one night in the Providence Civic Center, and, and a- after the game... <laughs> We're trying to ask Big John about it. And he told me, I'm not sure how many he told that night. Maybe Dick Weiss was with me. And he told us how not only did he not hate Patino, but he recommended Patino when Providence, his alma mater, called and said, who should we talk to? Wow. Big John loved Patino as a coach, but it didn't mean he wasn't ready to throw fists <laughs> that night. Right? <laughs> it's, That's it's right. So Right. Right. <laughs> and Patino was so surprised by it years later. It's funny. I was walking from Madison Square Garden back to Midtown with Rick after an NBA draft. We're walking back and I say, you remember the night? And he'd start, he start. he laughed so hard he has to stop crossing the street. And he says, do you know how much I revered Big John at that point? And he wanted to fight in the middle of a game because somebody whistled a foul against Reggie Williams. And it just, it, it brought back such great memories of if that honest emotion wasn't out there, the conference never would have been what it was instantly, right? Yeah. If you didn't have Roley and John and Coach Karnaseka yep. and yep. Jimmy, and if you didn't have all those guys willing to display that passion for their professions generally, but specifically yeah. for where they were coaching and what they were doing, Raw. It was raw. It was, man. It was great. It's what made the conference. And the fact that they could let it go, the fact that they lived it, they could let it go. They could see the value of it and the need for it when they did it. Mm -hmm. It says something huge to me about all of them and what they were willing to contribute to the effort. You know, and I would add to that, Mike, that not only that, but they were so competitive uh, on the floor. But if, if, Syracuse or Georgetown, when, when Georgetown played North Carolina, 
we were all screaming for Georgetown when Georgetown yes, played Houston yes, in the finals. Yes. We were all screaming for Georgetown. Which, which, which the ACC on, was never willing to do. That's right. ACC was, I, 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 believe me, there's a woman standing outside the door over here who went to Virginia undergrad and Duke Law School. And she'll say, right. why, why does the ACC channel and the network, why does that not work like the Big Ten or in that stage the bees? I say, because you guys couldn't pull for each other because you were so fractured and so knucklehead about it that you couldn't see the larger good. The ACC never had to because they own they had the the marquee. Right. Yep. Big East had to do that. The Big Ten just always has done that naturally, strangely enough. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you because I've seen what you're describing. Yeah, it's crazy. So I know I know you got close with Big John. You know we've had a lot of the guys on from Georgetown, and they they talk about him, uh, you know, with fondness. You know, and and it was a tough guy. It was a tough love thing. It wasn't like Coach Mass and the relationship we had. You know, the screaming part was pretty good. Close. But, you know, we we'd get a hug afterwards, and and Gene Smith's looking at me like, "What are you talking about?" So, talk about your relationship. And I know he kind of he took a liking to you, Mike. Right? I mean, he he was he a guy that kind of mentored you a little bit as a young as a young sports writer? No, oh, a lot. Um, I I said uh, I wrote after he he passed away last summer. Uh, I wrote that. I certainly never was good enough to play for Coach Thompson. That did not stop him, however, from coaching the hell out of me for 40 years. Yeah. And he did that. And I, I am so honored and sometimes overwhelmed by my relationships with Gene Smith, who I have a text from right now on, on the first 10 calls to return. When I'm finished with you guys, I have a, yeah. I have a text from Gene Smith. I tell, text, tell him you're with us and he can I, <laughs> I text with Eric Smith. Um, I talk to Patrick or we, we communicate and mostly text now. Yeah. Sometimes if there's a particularly thrilling win or a tough loss, I will call Patrick. Same. Who told me also that if my if I didn't send my kid to his, him and his camp this summer as opposed to Northwestern's camp, he was going to stalk me and hunt me down. <laughs> um, and so the, the relationship with those guys um, is amazing because I was not never their team. I was never their teammate. I was a guy covering them. And yet they extend this to me. And I, I know that's a large part because of coach. And his sons, who I should mention first, you know, JT3 and Ronnie, JT3, who I've known yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, and, and when they invited me to his funeral, I was literally overwhelmed. Um, because yeah. we we're, we're in pandemic time. This wasn't something that could have been held at RFK. Which of course it could have been held at RFK, yeah, under normal circumstances. But yeah, coach, you know when when my and I'm trying to get emotional about this. When my dad passed at 60 years old from lung cancer mm-hmm. on March 11th, so we're going into March Madness, right? The, the Georgetown had lost that year uh, early in the Big East, so they were going to the tournament, and I just left the office to fly home to Chicago when I found out my father had died. And I get home, you know, you need to talk, I need to talk to my mom in that instance. We need to get arrangements together. We need to talk about what has to be done with the family. You know, my mother's on the phone. She's on the phone like 40 minutes. And I'm annoyed now. Like, I want to go in and say, mom, can you get off the goddamn phone? I mean, we got stuff to talk about. But I don't do that. So she finally gets off the phone, who knows, 45 minutes later. And I go, who the hell was that? 
And she says, that was Coach Thompson. And I said to her, what did you guys talk about? She said, I'm not allowed to tell you. And so later that afternoon, I go to the funeral home and they're in the funeral home already. And I never called. I didn't call his office to say my dad passed. Nobody called that I knew of to ask me. There are no cell phones. It's 1986. And um, I get to the funeral home and there's an enormous arrangement of flowers already there the day before the funeral that says, from Georgetown basketball. And there's another arrangement right next to it that says, from Georgetown athletics. As if they're not one in the same, right? Yeah. And so I never talked to him about that. Never did. Um, because there was really nothing to say. Yeah. The, the act said it. Words were necessary. Yeah. So, you know, so did he mentor me? I mean, it, it, that, that really happened later. It really happened from the time I started writing a column when I would call Big John to ask about serious stuff. I mean, the serious stuff, not how you gonna, are you gonna throw a box of one on Chris Mullen? He didn't care about that shit. Yeah. I mean, he cared about it, but he didn't wanna talk. That's not what he cared to talk about. Right. Wanna talk right. about Proposition 48, Prop yep. 42. Right. Yep. Wanna talk, talk about cheating about... in college athletics. Yeah. Wanna talk about expansion of conference play and relocation of teams and what might later in 20 years become a transfer portal. He wanted to talk about big stuff. He wanted to talk about drug lords trying to get a hold of his kids in the city of Washington, D.C. in the 1980s when D.C. had the largest outdoor drug market of any city in the world. He, he wanted to talk about that. He once put me in his car and said, we're going to look for one of these drug kingpins. We're going to look for him. I wanted to say, coach, what if we find him and all I got is a notebook? But I didn't dare ask that. But the mentoring did not take the form of calling me himself, telling me what I should do. It was, it was real life shit. Yeah, real life awesome. stuff, like I'm telling you. And uh, so, you know, uh, he's one of the most important figures, you know, in my adult life as a, as a man. Well, let me ask you a question. When you go into sports writing, right? Uh -huh. it's, it's not chock full of African-American writers, right? Um, one of the reasons why Ray Leonard remembered me is because I was the only black writer who was in the crowd that day. Right. And so, I'm sure he turned to somebody and said, who is, this, who is that dude? <laughs> How did he get there? You know? <laughs> um, and I looked every bit of when I was, which was 21 years old. No, there weren't. It cut both ways. I mean, for people who didn't want to talk to you, I never wasted my time with those people who, who were suspect of my credentials mm -hmm. or me. Yeah. yeah. I never tried to talk to them because there were too many other people who wanted to or who were thrown off, but not in a bad way mm -hmm. by me being the only one. You know, you think the coaches weren't going to remember who I was? Yeah, I knew they knew. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of I mean, course. Yeah. And so that part of it, you know, worked to my advantage. I knew they knew who I was, and now it was up to me to impress them professionally in a way that would make them continue to remember, not just see me once and think, oh, yeah, I know his name. I know his work. Yeah. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And so right. when I could call Coach Beheim's office 
And I was told at first he was busy and then he, I, he, he'd pick up or call me right away. I knew that was the work that he trusted my work. Yeah. To this day, one yeah. time I asked Jim very early on, when was his first trip to the Final Four as a coach? What year was that? 80, the, the Indiana uh, 87, game? 87, 87, right? Against 87, Indiana. 87, right, 87. I would say Keith Smart. I don't want to piss some of y'all. Um, hey, you're killing me already. Keep going. I know, I know. So I want. So my sports editor, like this is a natural thing, says, hey, you need to go up to Syracuse to see if you can sit down and talk to Coach Behan. Like, what kind of request is that on the eve of the Final Four? I'm still in my 20s. And I call the office. And I said to a secretary, God forgive me for not remembering her name. Norma. Probably. Norma. Yeah. And I said, Norma, this is Mike Wilbon from Washington Post. I understand this can't happen, but I have to put the request in anyway. Can I come up and talk to Coach Beheim tomorrow? And she says, Mike, I don't think so, but you know, let me call you back. Uh, about two hours later, I get a call back and it says, be in the office here at nine o'clock, like 10 o'clock in the morning. I get the first flight out, which, you know, Jim knew all the times of the flights from Washington to Syracuse. He'd been on enough of them. I was on an eight o'clock flight and I came and he had me in his office. We walked around the gym and we talked. I had an hour with coach. Let's say it was Tuesday and they left for final four on Wednesday or something. Right. That's that sound right, Sonny? Sounds right. Yeah. Um, that's when you know somebody respects your work. Yeah. Right. He didn't let me come because he knew I was the only. Right. He knew I was the only at some point, but right. he let me come up there and he talked to me because he knew my work. And so, yeah, but but it was, you know, there was, there was ugly shit. I was not privy to a lot of it. I heard about it later. I know that certain people have come up to me in years subsequent as my friend and apologized for stuff that happened then. Sure. Wow. Um, but, see, but you're breaking barriers. Thompson's breaking barriers. There, there's gotta be some really yeah. common, common yes. ground. Yeah. And yeah. he knew he had, a, he, he, he suspected he knew some of it. As a matter of fact, I mean, John was, you had to prove he didn't even talked to me my first year on the beat. He didn't talk to me. Well, he had to gain you. He had to gain trust, first, and you right? To I see mean, that's how he was. He didn't. You want to see? He didn't let a lot of people about my work. That is yeah, exactly right, Chuck. And he said to me later, "I needed to see how you went about your business." Yeah, yeah, I believe that. And yeah. I got to know all the other coaches in the conference so I could cover Georgetown, and he loved that. He told me he did years later. Yeah. Um, and I respected that. First of all, it made me better at what I did. And then John, when John went to bat for you, when he went to bat for you, he didn't go to bat for you because you were a number, you were an oddity. Right. He went to bat because he believed it and he was going to crush somebody's ass for messing with you. That's so if he went, if, if he went to bat for you, then there was something was that in. really agitated him about what was happening to you. But he was all in. He was all in. And you and you still didn't know it. It's not like he was going to come to you and tell you. Yeah, he couldn't yeah, show right. the soft side. He, like he said with there, your mother, there's there no did. way your mom could tell him all the nice things that he was. That's telling right. Him and he well, he wanted right. to know. He wanted to ask about my father, or like you know, he knew, you know, that, that, that this was best kept private. But his something he needed to do for himself. So yeah, it's it's weird. I'm glad I didn't know all this stuff then. 
I didn't know any of this yeah. thing. Well, it's got to be a tremendous feeling, Mike, to have somebody respect you for what you do. Yeah. You know, like you like you said, and you and you're getting in now. You're getting in, and you're able to get you get stories and and talk to people the way nobody else can because you have the guys respect whether it's Bayheim or or Big John. I hope so because I I all those guys. I mean, yeah, Coach Carter II. That's awesome. Coach Carter II. I was I was in Queens during a snowstorm, and I couldn't get a taxi. God knows there's no Ubers. I, <laughs> how are you supposed to get from Jamaica Queens back to LaGuardia in a snowstorm? Right. Louis drove me. Oh, really? He drove me. He gave me a ride. He said, wow. get in the car. And I said, Coach, he goes, get in the car, get in the car. <laughs> Smack my face. <laughs> yep, that's how he is. So those guys, I... Um, he was pinching your cheek. That's an attack. Yeah, that's yes. A, yeah. So I, you know, I... Um, it, was a, it was a crazy time, man. You know, the conference... And all, my friends who were covering, my, my colleagues who were covering the ACC thought they had it better. I'm like, no, no, you actually don't. You really don't. <laughs> yeah. Talk about talk about some of the guys on the on the Georgetown team. You know, I mean, talk about a group that's was misunderstood. And I and I get uh, why Coach uh, you know had that facade up that the Hoya paranoia, whatever you want to call it. He yeah, he protected his guys. He was very he was, he was overprotective, yeah, he like it was his, his kids. You know. Yeah. You know, but, when you were, I wasn't behind the curtain early on, but when you get behind it, or just because they're about my age, I mean, I'm not, I'm like two years older than all those guys. I mean, I'm like four years older than Patrick, but the guys who were already there, Freddie Brown, Gene Smith, Eric Smith, Ron Blaylock, Ralph Dalton came in with, with Patrick. Like, I got to, like, now I know all those guys as just grown men and, right. you know, especially in kids and families and wives and this and that and heartache and then. So, but I got to know those guys when they were younger and they're working on Wall Street and they're interning in these incredible places, right? And people were saying they were stupid and they couldn't read. Yeah. And it, I, I, I saw what was going on. Yeah. I knew what was going on. I know Fred Brown. Fred Brown wasn't just a guy who threw the ball to James Worthy. Fred Brown's a guy I know. You know, um, yeah. I knew all those guys. And I say knew because some of them still know, like Gene and Eric Smith and Patrick, and I mentioned the guys that I still, you know, keep yeah. up with. Some guys I haven't seen in years and years and years, but but they were students because they had to be because Big yep. John wasn't having it any other way. That's right. People have right. no idea. No, nope. nope. we. Well, I know the deal. Way. We've we've, you we've know had a John, bunch of them yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mary Fenlon was a big part of that because yeah. they had John a call her at ten o'clock at night. You'd think that was done by accident. Now they oh can't be out doing things. They got to stay in to call yes. her. Yes. Yeah, it was non-negotiable. You know? It was non-negotiable. And guys thought that was easy. I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, like, running into them out maybe at a party. And they were, you know, because, again, I was at that time. So I'm 24. And we're all just barely grown. They're 20, 21. And they got to, like, leave to go back to the dorm. And I'm, like, laughing now. Cause I'm like, oh, these are the big tough Georgetown guys. Everybody's scared of. They can't, they, you know, they yeah. have no rules to govern them, and they're running back to a, you know, former nun at ten o'clock at night. I mean, this is, you know, and so, so, and John loved the portrayal, the inaccurate portrayal of it. Yeah, um, he, and he he set that whole thing up. It was it, it was it was magical. It really was, it was. A, a complete. Sonny, let me tell you this. There's no director. way. If I so. I've talked to Grant Hill about this, and there are people 
who were recruited or whose parents were called because John knew the parent because they were here, like Danny Ferry. Like I think John, I think the meeting was with John and, and Bob Ferry and then Danny came in, you know, whatever that was, which they described to me later. And then of course, Grant Hill, you know, these, these are DC people thinking as Dukies. Okay, they wound up being Dukies, but they also could have gone to Georgetown. And I know enough about that process to know, man, I was, there's no way I would have gone to Georgetown. It's just too hard. The demands were just too tough. And people say, why did so-and-so transfer? Why did so-and-so transfer? Because this shit was hard. Yeah, Reggie left for a week. He did. He told us, he told Sonny and I at dinner, he goes, listen, man, if I could have taken the mattress with me, I would have taken that too. That's yeah. great. And he was, I didn't yeah, he tell was, nobody. He was just not coming back. That's yeah, so great. And Reggie was one of my, Reggie is one of my, I should have mentioned Reggie when I mentioned the guy's all-time favorites, which was, was Reggie, you know? Is was and it's hard, it's hard, but look at those guys, you know, the way that they turned out, man. Um, you think Alonzo Morning wanted Big John putting word out on the street, you know, this guy's messing with my kid, have him come to my office. Think they like that? <laughs> no, I, yeah. I know they didn't because I was one of the ones having to write about the damn thing two days later. Wow. So so let me so let me ask you this because it was notorious like you couldn't talk to certain players or, or what have you. Was that something that you absolutely had to respect, or did you get a little bit more leeway? Um, I respected it, and that created the leeway. Okay. I never acted like I wanted to, like I really needed to talk to anybody. And that's just my own way of doing things. Whether it was a Georgetown kid, Michael Jordan, John Elway, I, I just I acted like they were the I, act, I treated it as if I was dealing with the prettiest girl in the class and I wasn't going to act too anxious to ever talk to her either. And early on that worked. I should have taken some lessons from her a long time ago. <laughs> it, 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 it Is that how you do it? It worked for me and it wasn't going to work for everybody and it didn't work for everybody. And sometimes I'm sure it didn't work for me. I was never chasing the crowd of reporters with microphones and notebooks, never. I was always back over here in the corner waiting. And I've had guys tell me, that they talked to me because I wasn't in the scrum. Yeah. I've had, I've had famous players tell me that later, and so I did that with Georgetown too. I, I never, I had the first interview with Patrick uh, on New Year's Eve. Freshmen couldn't talk right. uh, until second semester, and I sat. John, it's not a, it's not an accident that I my seat was next to Patrick Ewing's. I was in the middle seat on Piedmont Airlines flying from wherever it was to Washington, D.C., and Patrick was on the aisle seat. And we sort of did the first interview, his first. But I, I didn't ask. I, everybody else was asking, including my editors. And I was like, eh, yeah, whenever. We'll get to it. Right. So They wanted you to play, you know, a car. That's yeah. my life now. I don't, do, I don't do that shit now. How'd that work <laughs> out for you, Mike? Now you're in the Hall of Fame, right? Not bad. <laughs> Lucky, uh, probably. Bad. I mean, I think going against the grain is something I that I enjoy doing. But like everybody was ch chasing Chris Mullen, you know, uh, in those regular season games, I would always go to Mark Jackson. I tease Mark. I'm like, I got him right. I got one right. The guy who was going to be the coach and the broadcaster of my colleague, I got it right. I literally, you can go back and look at the stories where I'm quoting Mark Jackson at 18 years old. My sports editor said, are you aware there's a kid on St. John's named Chris Mullen who's a freaking All-American? Who's this Mark Jackson? 
I see he's right. gonna be a coach. He's gonna be a coach one day. This guy's this kid's brilliant. Yeah, he's he he's and some player. He was he was, and um, so yeah. So anyway, I didn't. I wasn't chasing. I wasn't chasing those interviews. I was glad to get them. I think once you get one, it can kind of roll a little bit after that. Um, but I got lucky. That's all. I, that, my approach was a lucky approach. That's all I'm gonna attribute it to. What What were some of your best memories of Big East games, moments, oh. tournaments? You know, I was talking about this the other night with, um, so I'm working obviously with Mike Greenberg and Stephen A and Jalen, and I'm older than everybody. Um, and I can talk about games they saw on TV as kids that I covered. And so we talked about this the other night and Stephen A said, we were talking about Syracuse, Georgetown. And I told him, I think the most exciting college basketball game I ever saw was in the dome. I forget the year, but there were 11 seconds left in the game and Pearl Washington gets the ball thrown. It's a shot at the elbow. It to me it was Addison, but it didn't have to be. I could get that part wrong. And he shoots a teardrop and the ball is up and the buzzer goes off and the ball goes through. And Georgetown had won 31 consecutive road games. Right. Let's find that among today's college basketball teams, right? So on Saturday afternoon, Georgetown had lost to St. John's. I think it was 66-64. Yeah, those are the only two losses they had that year. At Capital, at Capital, uh, Mm -hmm. what was it called? Jesus. Cap Center, yeah. Cap Center. Remember the score, but not the arena in in the town I live in. So so Chris Mullen had just a fabulous game. St. John's wins that game. Then they put the streak, the real streak was 31 in a row on the line at, at Monday night. Big Monday. It Big made Monday. Big Monday. All these other games are shit compared to that. Yeah. Big Monday, Syracuse, Georgetown, like 20 inches of snow. I didn't think I was going to get there. And Pearl Washington drops that bad boy in. You want and me to tell I, you? You want me to tell you what the play coach Beheim diagram? Yes, I want to hear this because I've never asked anybody he since. Said, he put his board out. He was like, get the ball to Pearl and then. And then he drew a bunch of circles, and that was it. <laughs> Do you it worked like a charm. Who, Get out threw of the way. In, who threw the inbounds pass? Oh, uh, I don't. I don't think it was Raf because Raf was Raf was going for the rebound on the weak side. Oh, of course, of course. I think I think it was. It might have been Sean. It was usually our foreman, so it might have been Sean. Uh, might could have been Wendell because that was right, Pearl's, right. Pearl's freshman year, so that was '84, and that was in the dome. Yeah, but you know the shot I'm talking about. I know. Is it from the right, from the People left elbow? Crashed yeah. the court. They ran over Rich Shavakin, the voice of the Hoyas, <laughs> right? And he's on the floor being trampled, and he's got the microphone at his face. And I remember, with eleven seconds left, I I was scared. I'm looking at this crowd, and I walked to the end of the tunnel with my laptop because I was terrified. I was like, "This is." This is not going to go well. Either way, this is not going to go well. And Pearl hits that shot. And that, of all the games I covered, and back then, covering the conference in Georgetown also meant for me, because I was a young single guy. I was 25 years old. It meant I went to Madison Square Garden. I stayed over at Syracuse, not just the Monday night game, but I stayed till Wednesday when Providence came in. You know, I went on Friday before the Saturday Georgetown-Villanova game. I stopped it um, somewhere and covered something else. So I got to see an absurd number of those games. And 
loved them. Loved. And I'm, look, I'm a Big Ten kid. I grew up on Big Ten basketball. I covered the ACC. Uh, Michael Jordan's freshman year. I was 23 years old. I was covering the ACC that year with Lynn Bias and Michael Jordan. And I thought the, I, I believe to this day that the Big East was tougher. It was nastier. It was more contentious. It was definitely more physical. And while the ACC, I'm never going to argue against the merits of the ACC. Right. The Big East in those three or four years was just a better league, top to bottom, better league. And didn't mean it had a better player, um, but it did have Patrick Ewing and Pearl, Pearl. I mean, the Pearl Washington thing, it makes me sad that people don't know how great Pearl was to, today. That I have to say to my son, when he starts talking about the greatest college point guards, I have to say, okay, you have to go to YouTube now. You have to look up Dwayne Pearl Washington and then come back and talk to me. You know, and so for me, um, you know, that that's just great shit, man. Yeah. That's great. Stuff. Hey, when you when you text Jeannie back, just tell him, hey, Pearl, that's all you gotta say to him. Well, I don't get in the way of that one. I don't <laughs> I don't I don't get in the way of those two. Yeah. <laughs> just well, he, he joke he jokes about, he jokes it. about like, it. He's yeah. in Does every he... highlight film that Pearl <laughs> is in, you know. He says Being, he and, and Gene was the best defensive player in the Big East at that He time. remains the best defensive guard, the best defensive point guard on the ball. Yes. Oh yeah. I've ever seen. He had to play against. Look at the people he had to play against. For my, for God's sake, they're all they were all in the NBA. Yeah. You know he's yeah. great. I, I, I. So yeah, I remember. I don't remember games as specifically as I remember that game with Pearl. Um, but the moments I remember and Mullen and Ewing, I remember all that stuff. Um, it's forty years later. Yeah. Forty years later. And, you know, yeah, I remember a lot of it. And and I remember Jordan versus Bias, too. I was there for that stuff. It's a great axis. The, Washington, D.C. is the axis of what, for 10 years, was the best basketball in America. Because not only did you have the Big East with all those characters, like, what, seven of them who went to the Final Four or whatever it was. You had the ACC with, with Dean and Krzyzewski and Jordan and Bias and Ralph. But you had... And worthy and Perkins, you can't you 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 stop and you leave. Remember how many people you leaving out? Then on a on a Tuesday night, on an off night, on an off brand night, I would hop in the car and drive to Annapolis and watch David Robinson score fifty and kick somebody's ass. Yep. How right. That? I could go to GW and watch Mike Brown, who wound up playing having a cup of coffee in the league. And so you just had people, you had games and, and leagues and schools that played the best basketball. And I know that from 1980 to 1988, 1989, that includes Morning and Dikembe, nobody saw better basketball than I did. No one. I tell oh, you, had- I would tell Dick Weiss that. I would tell <laughs> Bob Ryan that. Guy. <laughs> I, I'm like, dude, I can just sit here. You guys are always flying to my town. I don't have to leave my neighborhood. You had Dunbar, DeMatha. You had some best high I had Dunbar, DeMatha. I had high school. I I saw That's Sherman crazy. Douglas throw down a reverse dunk on a lob pass on Danny Ferry's head in a high school championship game. Yep. Well, right here at Coalfield House. The general. Didn't have to leave. Didn't have to go anywhere. I saw the best basketball. Yeah. yeah. I have to agree with you. It's pretty good. Um, 
we're getting close. We're getting close here on time, Mike. So I, you know, I'm sorry. I won't be so long winded. That's my bad. I have oh, to no. say, you Keep know, in following you and doing and doing doing this, you know, you've been a pioneer of sorts. Now you come. You're one of the first guys to come from the media, from the newspaper end of it, and get into the different medias, the radio, the television, and now social media. Talk about that. Talk about going from the the newspaper into into the current day stuff you know you're everywhere every time we put on espn you're there you know and talk about what it's like now with (laughs) talk about what it's like now with this with the social media aspect and how it's changed everything look i hate that end of it because i think that people don't young sports writers don't watch the goddamn game right watch the game they don't watch the game they're tweeting and they're Looking at their phones and they're coming up with all these analytics, all of that shit I hate. And so we've got no point now where I'm just an old man screaming, get off my lawn. And it's probably time for me to check out. But I love I didn't think of myself as a pioneer because I grew up. So there's one, there's a couple of names of people that I grew up who in Chicago were pioneers while I was 10 years old. And they are Brent Musburger. People see Brent on television, they think Brent was always on TV. Brent. Brent covered the Chicago Bears as a beat writer when I was a kid. So I, I read about Gale Sayers and Dick Buckus through Brent Musper, right? Then there was a guy, Wendell Smith, and people ask me all the time, well, you know, did you ever see anybody who looked like you? Yeah. Wendell Smith was writing for, he writing in the Black Press, writing in the Chicago Defender, might have been writing for the Pittsburgh Courier. I'm not sure of all the papers he wrote for, but I read him in the Chicago Defender and the and in the Chicago Sun-Times and probably Daily News, pioneer in terms of race and occupationally. He then was on channel at WGN, the same WGN that everybody watched to you know, see the Cubs when they were younger or whatever. He was on TV, a black man in the 60s, the 1960s, on TV, and I read his column. And Brent Musburger. I did not aspire to be them but I idolized them, both of them. I got to tell Brent that several times. He tells me to shut up. Um, and I got to tell Mr. Smith's widow that. Um, so this was always there. This was not something I found to be foreign. I didn't aspire to do it. When I, was, when I got a column at the Washington Post, that was it. I was done. That's as far as I needed to go. That's that's what I aspired to do. I was 29 years old, turning 30. I thought 30 was as young as you ever needed to be and have a column. I thought it was too young because you didn't know enough about real life. You didn't know how to be a father. I became a father at 50. So I was 20 years away from becoming a father. I didn't know anything. I wasn't married. I didn't know Jack. And I thought you needed to have lived real life uh, to become a columnist. Luckily, my, my sports editor, George Solomon, didn't see it that way. But so I, the, the transition to TV was very slow. It was incremental. Being on Sports Reporters with other yeah. people, I'm sure you've had on this podcast, with Bob Ryan and Mitch and um, Mike Lupica and all the people from the Northeast Corridor particularly, right? We were all. So that's when that started for me when I was in my 30s. And Joe Valerio, the late great Joe Valerio put me on. And so it was, it was, it was piecemeal. Like it wasn't a big thing. Like, okay, we're going to take you out of the, out of press row now and put you 
you know, it was, it was like, hey, can you come on the show? Can you appear on this panel? Can you do this three-minute segment on CNN? Whatever it was. And then you could see the you could see that this was the wave of the future. I never aspired to host a show. I didn't want to, I didn't care about that. I said no to that offer mm -hmm. several times before saying yes to it. So the transition was one. I was 42 years old by the time we started PTI. So I was wow. not I was not a baby anymore. It's 20, 20, 20 and a half years, 20 years ago in six months. So, you know, I I was ready for that then. I understood the way it was going. I understood you could reach many more people in locker rooms on TVs than you could by the aughts with a newspaper column. They worked hand in hand at one point. Now they don't even, they barely do that. And so people say, do you miss the Washington Post? Yes, I miss it, but I would have missed it anyway. Because if I had tried to stay and make that last till now, that wasn't going to happen. Makes me very sad, but I would have missed it anyway. So, Mike, talking about your idols, right, Wendell and Brent. Now, you got yeah. your other idol, Tony Kornheiser. We got to talk ah. about Tony, right? Now, Tony, you, know he's a, you know he's a Binghamton guy, so I, I got listen, a little bit of love for Tony. Every day. Are you kidding me? Every day. <laughs> every day I have to hear about that. And the funny thing, you guys should hear Beheim give him shit about Binghamton. It's so <laughs> funny. That Jim can do it. I mean, it's... Smooth. Jim... Most people who watch, and they can watch basketball for 40 years, college hoops, they have no idea how funny Jim Behan is. They have no idea what a great after-dinner speaker, during-dinner speaker, how funny he is, how he can just give people shit, and it's so smooth, and it's so effortless. And yep. you realize Jim played, hello, Jim, Jim played basketball and was pretty damn good at that. Um, but... Tony, uh, I met Tony when he was working at Newsday. No, I didn't. He had just come over to the poster Newsday. So we got there at the same time. I was an intern. He was 10 years in. And, you know, people can know that Tony did Monday Night Football. And they can hear him talk about football and all that shit. Tony's a basketball head. And the people who object most is trying to act like he's a football guy or guys who knew him 50 years ago, like Jim Bayon. And they'll say... Hey, we tell your partner, he can talk about football all he wants. He doesn't know shit about football. We know he's a basketball guy. We know he was in the palestra every Saturday of his life. When he was 24 years old. It's, it's funny. It's just, you know, John Chaney and, and Big John. Big John would say, tell Tony, I love the fact that he's making money from Monday Night Football. I know he's a pumpkin head. You know, and it's just, it would go on and on like that. And it's so funny that his roots are there. His roots are New York City and basketball. No matter what he goes and tries to do and make millions of dollars off of, his roots are that. He gets so excited when, uh, like, Binghamton beats. Who did Binghamton beat last week? Binghamton beat Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Stony Brook. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my about God. He got all jacked up about he that. He was yeah. beaming. I got to hear you're attacking Stony Brook. You're a grown man. Stop. And it's, you know, it's who he is. And so all this other that's, stuff, big time. That's, that's the magic of the show. Is the magic that is the magic. That's, 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 that's what makes the show work. You know, you can I, tell you, know, you guys I, are good friends. That's who we are. I mean, at our root, no matter what, you know, we, we, yes, we played golf with Barack Obama. But what brings him the most joy in his life is beating Stony Brook. This is just, you know, this is what. He sets the bar high. Now, Mike, did you did you let the president win, or you know, how did no, that work I got, out? 
this happens to be sitting here. I'm not supposed to show it, but I am. This is a flag from the course at Andrews Air Force Base. Right. Okay. And it says to Mike something about the $11. Can you see this? The $11 he had to pay me. I got the flag <laughs> on 18 from 44. How great is that? I got a picture of him handing me $11 too. That's great. Good thing, good, good thing you didn't play with He was when he was in office. But one of the things he said to me, to both of us, then was when I'm when I'm out of office, I'm going to practice and play every day. And he does. And he <laughs> and he would wear my ass out. Now, I want three strokes aside from him now. He's yeah. he's way better than both of us. Now. Lefty, right? Lefty, yeah. Yeah. Good thing you didn't play with PJ Carlissimo. You never would have saw the 11. You never would have saw anything. I've played with PJ and I think he still owes me money. <laughs> and by the way, I don't dare mention those coaches without mentioning PJ and even Bill Raftery. With the, real quickly, Bill Raftery destroyed my first story ever. Big East Georgetown game against Seton Hall at McDonough Arena. Raftery comes out of his jacket. He comes right out of the jacket at a call he hates and he pounds. My legendary. Computer, yeah, he's legendary. Like Stone Age, then a computer. And he knocks the story out. The lights go out of the computer. I'm on deadline. I'm 21 years old. I'm going to get fired. And I'm, I'm sure I'm cursing him because I don't even know Bill at that point. <laughs> out of the locker room, I'm trying to reconstruct my story. Bill Raftery, this is a true story. Bill comes out of, this is my first Big East game. Bill comes out of the <laughs> locker room and says, I'm Coach Bill Raftery. I said, I'm Mike Wilbon from the Washington Post. And he says, I heard I destroyed your story, kid. And I said, yes, you did. He takes a chair and he turns it around and he sits down and he says, I'm going to help you reconstruct it if it takes all night. And he sat in the chair and he gave me funny quotes and he did said all kinds of stuff, none of which was any good on the reconstruction of the story. <laughs> but the fact is yep. that Bill Raftery, a Division I coach, was willing to sit there for an hour to help me reconstruct the story he had killed when I was 21 years old. Not I made this 22. Not surprised. Yeah, that doesn't that surprise us. So you want to know who my favorite coach of all time in the Big East is, you know, okay. it's, it's probably, it's probably Bill for that, for that very purpose. Wow. That's awesome. Well, I, I tell you what, it, it, this has been a blast, man. I mean, we really, really had a good time. I hope you had fun, Mike. We really I hope it's been worth it. Since you guys claim you wanted me to do it, I hope it's been worth it. Oh, it's great. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? It's fun for me me because that represents a time of my life, which is now, first of all, I could see it when the biggies did the dot, the 30, 30, right? I could see it. You're not in it. I was in too much of it. But when I see Mark Jackson, when I see Chris Mullen and I see all the NBA guys, they're, they're now alums. They've been retired 20 years. I see those guys. And we start talking about games. And they know that I remember these things for a living because I had to. And so I become the arbiter sometimes. You know, with Sherman Douglas, my neighbor here in Potomac, Maryland. You know, I become the arbiter of, wait a minute. Did you see? He didn't take that shot. He didn't make that. That was a charge. That was a block. Lenny Wirtz made a bad call. You know, whatever. Dick Paparo. You know, and, and with the coaches, too. They expect me to remember this stuff. I don't remember anything. And it's, it's so this is a, a, a slice of my life, which I don't get to indulge in very often. And so it's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure. And I got to, 
I got a list now. I got other, I got all the links to stuff you guys have all you guys have done. So I'm I'm that's gonna be good airplane reading for keep this March Madness. I'm gonna put it on and relive it. Mike, just so you know, Chuck and I are sending a little message back and forth, and it's like, I got one more question. I got one more question. (laughs) We we don't want to let you go, man. (laughs) Right. I I appreciate that, man. This has been fun. This is much more fun than me sitting and watch the Bulls get their ass kicked by the Suns tonight because the Bulls don't have any players. They're all hurt. So I'm 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 in a bad mood anyway, so you guys are helping stave that off for a couple of hours. Well, we aim to please, Mike. You know, that's (laughs) that's the kind of guys we are. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of guys we are. I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys. Well, listen, thank you again to our, our guest today, the Hall of Famer, Chicago's own Michael Wilbon. Mike, thanks again so much for joining Chuck, us. Chuck, Sonny, thank Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you very uh, much, absolutely. Mike. Pleasure. Biggie's Rewind was brought to you by uh, Nick Chico Chorus and Daryl Gurney, produced and directed by um, Sonny and I can be reached through Gmail at Biggie's Rewind at gmail.com. You check us out on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts from. Put in Big East Rewind in the search bar. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Thanks a lot. Hope you had fun joining us. Have a great night.